The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. All right. By uh, popular demand, I'm going to do a sort of full review of the Andrew Cuomo covid cover up claims that are circulating so we can try to sort of sort out what's truth and what's lies and what we know about and what we don't know about and sort of what's relevant to policy versus what are sort of like the more a personal scandals in which Andrew Cuomo is now embroiled. Uh, so let's get right into it earlier in the pandemic. New York Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo was seen as sort of a model governor in responding to the pandemic. And despite New York being hit very hard early, believed to be because of the number of nonstop flights both to China, sort of like source one for the virus and Italy and surrounding parts of Europe, sort of like source two for the virus in the United States. Despite that, the idea was that Cuomo handled the virus as well as was possible, given what we knew at the time and ramped up testing relatively quickly, as quickly as feasible, uh, put in place guidelines, did shutdowns as necessary. And while much of the United States had three spikes, New York was able to completely suppress the uh, what was typically spike two for much of the country in the middle of the summer. And they had uh, basically the initial spike and then the fall spike, limiting themselves to two spikes rather than three, thanks to Andrew Cuomo's great work. Now, until more recently, some very serious allegations of the covering up of deaths have surfaced. So let's go through the allegations from the emails I've gotten. A lot of people don't actually understand what is even being alleged. Now, I want to be upfront that much of much of this is still disputed and contested and just about every report has some detail that is not at least yet confirmed. But we're going to do the best we can to parse through the evidence we have. The big scandal and the big allegation is that at Andrew Cuomo's either direction or uh, uh, indifference, nursing home covid deaths were undercounted by the state, allegedly to the tune of thousands of nursing home covid deaths. And indeed, the New York Health Department has made public data that added more than thirty eight hundred nursing home deaths to their tally after this story broke. And the state now acknowledges that they upped nursing home deaths by about 40 percent. Now, it's really important to be clear here, and this is what a lot of people may be missing. This is not an allegation that New York undercounted covid deaths nationally, even globally. We believe that there have been far more covid deaths than the official numbers because of people who died, including at home and were, were never tested. But the allegation is not that the full public number of New York covid deaths is being artificially suppressed any more than just we're probably undercounting covid deaths at a global level. The current New York covid death toll is about forty seven thousand, and that has nothing to do with these allegations. What's at issue is how many nursing home residents died. And our best understanding of the undercount is that there were thousands of nursing home residents who became so sick that they went to a hospital, died in the hospital and they were not counted as nursing home deaths. Now, in a literal sense, they did die at the hospital. But we all understand that if you are a nursing home resident who catches the virus at a nursing home, you should be counted as a nursing home death from the standpoint of evaluating how well did Andrew Cuomo protect nursing home residents? And that's the crux of this. Even if the total number of deaths is not being lied about, if you undercount nursing home deaths, you are making it seem as though you are much better protecting nursing homes than you really are. So this is dishonest and Andrew Cuomo has to be held accountable. This has a real impact. It's not just academic. It's not just a number. Families make decisions about facilities for loved ones, in part based on whether they believe their loved ones will or won't be safe at nursing homes. If you falsely believe that there are way fewer nursing home covid deaths than there really are, you might make a decision about a loved one 
based on those deceptive statistics. So this is very real, very serious, and it has a real world impact. Now, what are the defenses? The defenses are what we heard from Health Commissioner Howard Zucker from New York, which is that the state website uh, had always been clear that deaths it listed uh, for nursing homes did not include deaths that took place outside the facility and that the total number of deaths was never undercounted. That's the defense uh, from the New York Health Health Department. Uh, then there's the second piece of this, which is the criticism that New York State sent nursing home residents who were hospitalized back to nursing homes in cases where they shouldn't have been sent back. This one is more nebulous right now. We're still learning, learning more about it. Andrew Cuomo is defending this and saying that everybody that was sent back was sent back in adherence to uh, uh, in compliance with federal guidelines and that they didn't do anything that was wrong. Now, on the second issue, I'm not really able to put together a definitive take on it. We just need more information about that now separately. And this is a lot of stuff happening all at once to Andrew Cuomo. Separately, there are allegations of Andrew Cuomo being basically a bad guy, bullying employees and treating employees terribly. Uh, I see this as important, but secondary to the covid scandal. It's a lot of he said, she said, I, I can't possibly analyze it in any serious way other than to say all of the allegations should be investigated and the cards should fall where they may. I, I don't care that Andrew Cuomo is a Democrat, uh, whatever, whatever is uncovered should be what it is and uh, it should be dealt with. And then lastly, there are also now new allegations of inappropriate sexual advances and conduct by Andrew Cuomo. Lindsey Boylan, who worked for Cuomo as an aide, says that uh, on a private jet, Cuomo suggested playing strip poker, which made her feel uncomfortable. Uh, Boylan says that that happened after she was promoted to be um, Cuomo's uh, deputy secretary for economic development and a special advisor to him. Um, she said she initially turned the job down because she didn't want to be near him, ultimately accepted it. Boylan also is describing an incident where uh, they were in, in his office in New York City on Third Avenue. And when she got up to leave and walk out a door, that Andrew Cuomo allegedly stepped in front of her, kissed her on the lips and that she was uh, shocked, but just kept walking out. Now, this is totally separate. And uh, th it, this allegation has to be taken seriously and fully pursued. So that's the story as I understand it. Some of the emails I received were, were implying I wasn't going to talk about this because Cuomo is a Democrat. First of all, we talked about this last week for a while on the bonus show. Secondly, I've said a million times, I don't care about these politicians beyond their doing things for the people. I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans. I never defended, you know, Anthony Weiner. I don't deify politicians. They all have good and bad. And why wouldn't I talk about Andrew Cuomo? Investigate every single thing. If the people of New York want him to resign, he should consider resignation. If there are criminal wrongdoings, then investigate and prosecute. We don't ignore stories because it's a Democrat on this show. That is the full story as, as I understand it. So really sort of like four stories, the undercount of nursing home deaths, sending patients from hospitals back to nursing homes, the bullying of employees and the alleged sexual harassment of Lindsey Boylan. Those are the four stories as I understand them. They are separate stories. We could sort of group them as the two covid stories and the two bullying and harassment stories. And we'll just have to follow all of them and see where the cards fall. We now have a new poll about Americans view on the proposed but still not passed covid relief bill of Joe Biden and Democrats. We'll be speaking to Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna a little bit later today, and I'm going to ask him what's going on and, and how quickly does he think this is going to move forward. But there is a, a new Politico morning consult poll which shows that 76 percent of all Americans strongly support or somewhat support the covid-19 relief bill. This is the one point nine trillion dollar bill, not that tiny six hundred billion dollar package that some Republicans propose. This is the big boy. Um, only 17 percent of Americans somewhat oppose or strongly oppose the package. The rest don't even have an uh, have no opinion at this point. And stunningly among Republicans, 60 percent of Republican voters strongly or somewhat support the one point nine trillion dollar covid relief package. This is a really big deal because in the United well, it's a big deal for a bunch of different reasons. Number one, in the United States over the last eight to ten years, 
the level of political division and polarization makes it really difficult to ever have more than 58 or 60 percent support for almost anything. After the Sandy Hook shooting during Barack Obama's presidency, there was something like 88 or 90 percent support for universal background checks for firearm transactions of all kinds. This means eliminating every uh, mechanism uh, by which you could obtain a firearm without a background check, uh, 88, 90 percent support. And it still didn't pass. And if you hadn't been paying attention to this reality up until then, it was another reminder that our elected officials are not actually representing the views of their constituents, because if they were with 88 to 90 percent support for that, it would have passed. We now are seeing essentially every Republican, although I believe if it comes down to it, some Republicans will vote for the covid-19 relief bill proposed at one point nine trillion dollars because some pragmatic Republicans recognize that their constituents want it. But at this point, you have 76 percent of the country saying we want this pass this. It's been proposed. It's been voted on in the House. Joe Biden wants it. Democrats want it. Uh, presumably it would pass the Senate with 50 at minimum 50 votes and Kamala Harris is the tie breaking vote. And yet we aren't seeing any Republicans come out and say this is popular with the American people and it's my responsibility to represent them. Seventy six percent support and even 60 percent of Republicans supporting this and not a single Republican for now has said, let's do this. I want to vote for this. So as I've said before, let them vote it down. Democrats should be spinning this accurately as this has bipartisan support. We're not talking about uh, uh, Republican senators who are against it. We're talking about with the people, 76 percent of the country, 60 percent of Republicans support this. There is rarely anything as bipartisan when it comes to public support as this. Where are Republican elected officials on it? Pass it via budget reconciliation or attempt to let every single Republican who is committed to voting against it do it. Pass it via budget reconciliation. You know, you have the votes with 50. Uh, Joe Manchin said he, he supports it. As far as I last saw, that was about a week ago. Kamala Harris would be the tie breaking vote. Have Joe Biden sign it. And if every Republican really feels confident that they can vote against this without suffering with their own constituents, let them do it. I don't understand who it is that Republican elected officials are representing by opposing this. Certainly not their constituents. Are they I mean, you know, where we typically go is are they representing corporate interests? Are they representing donor interests? Are they representing lobbyist interests? I, I don't exactly know, uh, but we know that um, certain staking out certain positions for Republicans is very lucrative in terms of fundraising. And maybe that's all that this is. I don't know the answer. We'll talk to Ro Khanna about it a little bit later today, but it's time to do it. It's it's just time to get it passed. If you can think of any reason why Democrats at this point should not go forward with the one point nine trillion dollar covid relief bill through budget reconciliation requiring only a simple majority, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. One of our sponsors is Vincero Watches, giving you 15 percent off. A high quality wristwatch is the perfect way to elevate your style. Own at least one watch that makes you feel great when you put it on. You can often see me wearing my Vincero watch on the show. Mine is the gunmetal vessel model. I'm a big fan of the metallic look of the face of the watch. I like the silicone strap. You won't find a better made watch for this good a price anywhere else. When you put it on, you know you got more than you paid for. Vincero believes in crafting super quality watches from high end materials, but selling them at fair prices, which is why they have over twenty six thousand five star reviews and they stand behind every watch they make with a one year return policy and five year warranty. They'll give you 15 percent off everything in their store and free shipping when you go to davidpackmancom slash watch and use coupon code Pacman. You can find the URL in the podcast notes. Just make sure to use promo code Pacman. 
Today's show is sponsored by an excellent audio book called Takeover, How a Conservative Student Club Captured the Supreme Court. This is the latest audio book from Noah Feldman. It just came out and Feldman actually narrates the audio book himself. Noah Feldman, of course, is a Harvard law professor and constitutional scholar. You may remember him from his prominent role in Trump's impeachment number one. And the book Takeover looks at how the Federalist Society became the most powerful legal organization in the country. Six of the nine current Supreme Court justices are uh, current or former members of the Federalist Society. And Takeover dives into what the organization is, what it stands for, its relationship with American politics. The Federalist Society is an organization anyone in my audience should be aware of. And the audiobook has a ton of excellent insight into it and the role it plays. I really enjoyed listening to the audiobook. I think anybody in my audience would as well. So grab Takeover by Noah Feldman. The audiobook is just $4.99 and you can get it at davidpackman.com slash takeover or wherever you buy audiobooks. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. We are a viewer and listener supported program, and the best way to support the work we do is simply to grab a membership on our website. It's cheap, I promise. It's quick, believe me, and it'll feel really great to be supporting the work we do. Plus, you get an extra show just for our paid members every day. Go to joinpacman.com. That's P A K M A N. Got a lot of emails saying, David, I went there. Didn't work. But my last name is not P A C M A N, it's P A K M A N. Joinpacman.com. Grab a membership today. We have a um, really rapidly growing discussion forum on Reddit. Uh, it is the David Pakman Show subreddit now with nearly 30,000 of our viewers and listeners subscribed for free. You can find it at davidpackman.com slash Reddit. A few interesting posts I spotted this morning. One is um, a post called We Defeated the Flu Amazingly, and it's a uh, Screenshot of a Dr. Drew tweet. Now, Dr. Drew has told some whoppers on COVID in the past, but he is right about this. And Dr. Drew tweeted, amazingly, only 165 patients have been hospitalized with the flu in the United States since October. Last season, we had 400,000 hospitalizations. The staggering difference may be due to better hygiene practices, changes in the bacterial gradient field. Either way, continue washing your hands. Well, Dr. Drew is sort of right here. I mean, what we know is that coronavirus is more contagious than the flu. It's R not its reproduction rate is uh, when it's unmitigated uh, is higher than the flu. If you are able to take measures that prevent the spread of the flu by sheer mathematical reality, you are also going to prevent the spread of less contagious things because we are taking measures. Many of us, we have been uh, to stop the spread of coronavirus. The flu, which is less contagious, has been all but completely destroyed. I read uh, I think it was I'm going from memory here. I believe it's that in the UK, there's only been one pediatric flu death where normally at this point in the flu season, there would be way, way, way more. So it's very difficult to find anything good out of this pandemic, which has been so destructive. Uh, maybe the the advance and, and kind of putting into reality uh, mRNA based vaccines would be something that would be good and, and would be um, available uh, in the future for dealing with other um, diseases. That that's a possibility. It's hard to find anything positive, but certainly the absolute destruction, I would say decimation. But I think we, we've done even better than 90 percent reduction in the flu season has been uh, absolutely fantastic. Another post I spotted this morning on the subreddit uh, from a user named Cop Cooper Moss, who says the flag at my local Walmart is at half staff. And I think it was to honor Rush Limbaugh writing that, quote, I'm a truck driver and deliver to this particular Walmart Walmart store in Oregon and notice that the flag is at half staff. Now, I can't find any info online as to any official statement from the state as to why other than the whole Rush flag debacle. I also know the manager of the store is really conservative and looks like he could be Rush's fatter, shorter brother. I feel like it shouldn't be up to the store manager's personal feelings as to when the flag is lowered or raised. Maybe I'm overreacting, but for context, about a year ago, a driver was crushed to death when a forklift rolled over him 
And people barely spoke about it the next day, never saw the flag lowered to respect someone who literally died working for you. But a homophobic radio personality across the country deserves that honor. Listen, I don't know what's going on at this store. Um, Joe Biden ordered flags lowered for five days in commemoration and memory of the 500,000 coronavirus deaths. In theory, the timing at this Walmart could be over that, although if it's a hardcore right wing store manager, I don't know. But there's actually a lot of stories of really random and relatively obscure places, even lowering their flags in honor of Rush Limbaugh. And um, yeah, I, I think that Rush Limbaugh was a terrible influence on this country and on this planet. Uh, but you are seeing a lot of people who want to honor his memory as if he did something good, which is really destructive and sad to see. Join the discussion on The David Pakman Show subreddit at davidpakmancom slash reddit. That's R E D D I T. If this story were not a tragedy of ignorance among our elected leaders, it would be the stuff of comedy legend. But sadly, it's not because it's so serious. What am I talking about? Well, Democrats now support a $15 an hour minimum wage nationally. Republican senator from South Dakota, John Thune, opposes a $15 minimum wage, and he tweeted that $15 an hour is just too much. And his evidence is that back when he was a youngster, he only earned six dollars per hour, tweeting, quote, I started working by bussing tables at the Star Family Restaurant for a dollar an hour and slowly moved up to cook the big leagues for a kid like me to earn six dollars an hour. Businesses in small towns survive on narrow margins, mandating a fifteen dollar minimum wage would put many of them out of business. Now, John Thune is, of course, either forgetting or ignoring something called inflation. For a moment, forget about a productivity adjusted minimum wage. Forget about a cost of living adjusted minimum wage. Let's just deal with inflation. John Thune is 60 years old. He said when I was a kid, let's say that it was when he was 18 years old. I, I, I my guess is we don't know what year this was, but we'll say he wasn't 14. He wasn't 16. Let's assume he was actually already 18 years old when he was talking about this, when he was working at the Star Family Restaurant. That would put it at 1979 or more than 40 years ago, merely adjusting for inflation. Six dollars per hour in 1979 would be twenty one dollars and sixty two cents per hour today. And he's opposed to a fifteen dollar minimum wage based on what he earned in the late 1970s. Is this some kind of bad joke? I mean, like, tell me this is a bad dream and he's not really this ignorant. And maybe he's not. Maybe he's doing this because he knows it's his followers that are actually the ignorant ones. Now, I will be the first to admit I've conceded before. I've talked about this before. There are legitimate questions that can be brought up about a $15 minimum wage in some places. For example, in a state like Alabama, which has no state minimum wage, meaning the prevailing minimum wage there is the federal one of 725 an hour. Alabama has a 725 an hour minimum wage. Cost of living is really low. It's one of the lowest in the country. There is a legitimate question to think about if you more than double the minimum wage in Alabama, where cost of living is so much lower than in many other parts of the country. What does happen to a primarily uh, to a service based business where labor is the primary input? Now, again, I'm not talking about McDonald's where labor is not the primary input, but rather it's uh, rent uh, of the of the facility supplies, the food. I'm talking about like really a service based small business in Alabama where they have to double more than double what every empl every employee is making. We can talk about that. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to discuss. But John Thune's argument, I made six dollars an hour in 1979. So $15 is too much today, even though six back then is more than 21 in today's dollars. That's a non thinking argument. He's making a great argument for a large increase to the minimum wage. He made six dollars an hour 40 years ago. The federal minimum wage is only seven twenty five right now, and it's 40 years later. 
if there is ever a better argument that the minimum wage is too low, it's that 40 years ago he made six and now it's only 725. Now, the more likely scenario is that John Thune does understand this and that ignoring inflation makes his argument ridiculous. But he's putting out an argument that his Republican followers will fall for merely to sow doubt, which is how these propaganda battles are won and lost. Get people to hear that talking point over and over and over again and repeat it, even if it's obviously ridiculous. Another popular one for the anti minimum wage people is, listen, if more money is good, why stop at fifteen dollars an hour? Make it fifty or a hundred or a thousand dollars an hour. Give everybody a thousand dollars an hour and then everybody will be rich. And of course, that ignores that calculating what the minimum wage should be is not just a calculation of what would you like to earn? Oh, you want to make five hundred grand a year? Great. Yeah, let's figure that out. No. You have to have a minimum wage that in context is an equilibrium wage adjusted for inflation, cost of living, productivity, etc. And there is no mathematical argument. There's no economic argument you could make for a hundred dollar an hour minimum wage. I've not heard anyone advocate for that. So we'll have more about this. Uh, my question, which you can answer, find us on Instagram at David Pakman show and you can answer there. Do you think John Thune is this stupid or do you think he knows about inflation and just assumes his followers are that stupid that they'll fall, fall for this? Follow us on Instagram at David Pakman Show. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you are anything like me, you probably aren't thrilled with the idea of going into a doctor's office right now. And thankfully, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. It's a service called Steady MD. They're one of our sponsors. You take a quiz, you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your health needs. You have a one hour video call with your new doctor. You establish a meaningful relationship with them. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone or video chat. This is not a random doctor on call. Each doctor at Steady MD has a limited number of patients, so they actually have time to listen to you. You get the personal attention that you deserve. They can do almost everything an in-person doctor can do, perform medical evaluations, talk to you about health concerns send prescriptions to your home or local pharmacy and anything they can't do online. They'll quickly set you up with an in-person provider to do things like blood tests. As an example, you don't need insurance. It's only ninety nine bucks a month with no other fees or copays. There are so many practical advantages to using steady MD for primary care, and it's also so much more affordable. Go to steadymd.com slash Pacman to take the free quiz and see which doctor is right for you. I took their quiz. They matched me with a doctor who specializes in my particular health needs. The doctor they gave me is a really perfect fit for me. Again, that's steadymd.com slash Pacman. There's no risk, no commitment to get started. That's S T E A D Y M D.com forward slash P A K M A N. One of our sponsors is Sussman and Han. Sussman and Han has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other supplies to stay safe during COVID-19. And Sussman and Han is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks and other PPE because I trust the products that they sell. And that's actually why we reached out to them about becoming a sponsor, because their prices are reasonable. Ordering is simple. Everything ships within 24 hours and they just have high quality products for this global hundred year pandemic. They've got surgical masks, KN95 masks N95 masks, other useful things like infrared thermometers, face shields, sanitizers. Sussman and Han is also an awesome company because they've donated over 65,000 masks so far to healthcare institutions. Shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get to their website by going to davidpackmancom slash mask and you'll find the link in the podcast notes and you will get 20 percent off when you use the coupon code David. That's davidpackmancom slash mask coupon code David for 20 percent off. 
Welcome back to The David Pakman Show. Today we are welcoming back to the program Congressman Ro Khanna, representing California's 17th district located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Congressman, always great to have you on. Great to be on. So let's just start with the covid relief bill. Um, popular with 76 percent of Americans, even 60 percent of Republicans. Rarely do you see such agreement among uh, 330 million Americans on anything. Um, One point nine trillion dollars. Many people wondering what what are we waiting on right now exactly? Well, we're going to pass it uh, this week uh, in the House and then it goes to the Senate. So we're waiting as often on the Senate. Uh, and most of the bill is going to go through the big debate, as you know, is whether the minimum wage will be uh, part of it, the increase to fifteen dollars is uh, at this point. Do you think that understanding how popular the bill is nationally, that Republicans in the Senate are really going to stand in the way or will some of them take the more pragmatic approach of realizing that this is popular even with many of their constituents and it makes sense to to be on the right side, so to speak? You would think that, but that's not the indication. I mean, when you have Mitt Romney coming out saying that uh, this is too big a bill and uh, too much spending, I mean, if he's not going to be for it, it doesn't give me much hope that uh, you're going to get many Uh, Republicans for it. So I expect, unfortunately, that this will be a straight party line vote. How soon would the stimulus deposits and or checks start getting to people if it was passed sometime next week? It would be a few weeks, typically. I mean, I know uh, in the previous administration, it dragged on for uh, months and we still have some people who are asking about uh, the six hundred dollar check from last time. So I hope we've learned from that. Typically, it takes about two to three weeks for people to see the check after the president signs it. In your mind, would this be the last covid stimulus? I hope not. I have called with Tim Ryan since the uh, covid crisis uh, began for monthly checks because people's rent comes due every month. There are a lot of folks who aren't getting the unemployment benefits. I think we have to continue until uh, the uh, crisis is over, until our uh, economy is fully open again. Uh, And I'm going to continue to push for that. What metrics would you look at to determine when that is, I guess? I would look at the unemployment rate, uh, but not just the unemployment rate for people who have opted out of the uh, workforce. I would look at the infection rate and the prevalence and seeing uh, how much uh, uh, we've been able to open up our uh, economy again. The $15 minimum wage, which is part of the version that is currently um, uh, in in your chamber in the House of Representatives, if that doesn't ultimately get included in the bill, is that the next thing you'd like to see Congress take up or is there something else? I would, because it's the one thing that represents structural change. So the bill is very important. It gets money to state and local governments. It gets money for vaccines. It gets money uh, of cash for every individual. But it's not structurally changing the economy. The minimum wage does. It would fundamentally increase wages for people. The challenge is, and and Bernie Sanders made this point yesterday, that you can't do the minimum wage without uh, reconciliation. They're just not 60 votes. So you either have to get rid of the filibuster or you have to do reconciliation, which is why it's so important to get this in uh, the current bill. Um, When we talk about uh, the immigration situation, we covered on the program earlier this week how uh, Joe Biden did very quickly uh, do this executive order to stop the removals of um, undocumented immigrants back to a number of different countries. But a judge very quickly kiboshed that. And since, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe Biden has not attempted with a different legal justification to do another executive order. And I've read a number of interesting legal assessments that say if Joe Biden was really determined to do this, there are a number of other ways that he could word and structure executive orders. The it was a it was a very um, narrowly stopped by this Texas judge. And Joe Biden hasn't done that. I've said that I think that if indeed this is the priority Joe Biden said it would be and that I believe it should be, he should be going right back at this with another executive order and another. What do you think? I agree with you. I mean, I think that uh, uh, we shouldn't let one judge stop the process of having a more humane uh, immigration policy. And the biggest concern to me are the the kids. And I'm sure you read also on the on the detention uh, and, and sending them there. Now, they're are alternatives. You can have community detention, you can, uh, community placement, uh, and uh, it's a question of having the resources and a plan. 
Uh, so I think that this has to be looked at. Uh, I've looked, uh, I'm on Pramila Jayapal's roadmap for immigration. She's going to be putting out a plan on how we keep our borders safe, uh, but are not treating uh, most of the migrants coming over, particularly kids, as criminals. So if Joe if Joe Biden doesn't do it, if he just leaves it as I did an executive order and a judge stopped it and I guess now we have to wait, would you consider that a failure? I don't think that's true to uh, what he ran on. I mean, we uh, every Democratic candidate running said that we were going to look at the inhumane uh, Trump policy and, and return to a policy uh, of not criminalizing most people crossing the border, that it is a civil infraction. It, you can be uh, sent back, but uh, there has to be a move that uh, we aren't treating uh, mothers and kids as, as criminals and that we're placing them in uh, in community pl- placements instead of these detention centers. Mm. In terms of the makeup of the House of Representatives right now, uh, when we look at national polling among Republican voters, for the most part, the support of the former president, Trump, is is still significant. Um, something like 80 percent of Republicans want him to remain involved. Sixty four percent said if he split off and started his own party that they would follow him. Now, I expect that in practice, those numbers would be lower. I, I think the idea of splitting off is more appealing than right. actually doing it. But needless to say, for the time being, there, there's continued support among the Republican Party for the former president. What is your assessment right now of the impact within your legislative body of the presence of folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn, who arguably are only even there by riding on the coattails of Trumpism in the last six months of 2020? Well, they've been marginalized uh, from the body. But the challenge is that there were almost 140 uh, Republicans who voted for the uh, the opposing the certification of the election. Yeah. And that's a lot of that's not just some of these extreme cases. And so the decision the Republican Party has to make, and it's a very difficult decision, is how do they move beyond Trump uh, without abdicating their base? And I, I don't think any Republican actually has uh, figured that out. I mean, you have Nikki Haley taking a different side of the equation every day because they're trying that balancing act. But uh, and they've seen the consequences of a Liz Cheney or someone who c- c- tries a clean break. And uh, un- until they are able to get a coherent vision of a, of a post-Trump future, uh, they're going to struggle. Is it naive to think that this fracturing, particularly if this divide becomes more noticeable, if Donald Trump does start his own party or if he announces at CPAC on Sunday that he's running as a Republican in 2024, any of these things that might fracture these two sides? Is it naive for me to think that it's an opportunity for the left to get things done while they are fighting amongst themselves? Well, I, I think for the sake of the country, it would be better to have a, uh, a coherent uh, party that rejects uh, uh, racism and that uh, moves beyond Trump. Uh, but what I would say is we have all the tools we need, but we, we don't even have to focus right now on the Republicans. What we have to do is focus on how uh, controlling the House, controlling the Senate, and the presidency, we get our things through. And we ought to be doing uh, aggressively through reconciliation, uh, the $15 wage, the COVID relief, infrastructure. Uh, and expanding health care. So uh, I think we have an opportunity to deliver on our agenda on health care. What do you see as as the next step, not in a, in a perfect world where we might be talking about Medicare for all or, or something else, but based on what Joe Biden ran on? Is it is it a simple let's establish a public option? What is it that you see as the immediate next step on health care? Well, we should expand Medicare, and he ran on expanding it to 60. That seems to me an easy yep. uh, lift. Uh, we should look at how we at least get uh, a public uh, option uh, that is uh, affordable uh, as a step towards uh, a single player. I mean, I believe fundamentally we, Medicare for all is the right solution. Right. Uh, but if there, what, what I would say is let's look at any step in the lens of is it getting us closer to that uh, ultimate goal. And if and we should support those parts that are helping us move in that direction. In your mind, does this have to be done before 2022? Because we simply don't know who will control what after that point. I do. I mean, I, I think it has to be done not for the sake of politics. I mean, people say, oh, if you don't do this, you'll lose the House. I just think it's so rare in American politics that you have the presidency, the Senate and the House. And if we don't do this, uh, who knows when all those stars align again? Uh, we're working very, very hard to make sure we keep the House. I know Senator Schumer is working hard to keep the Senate, and I think we have a very good chance. But 
politics is unpredictable. And while we have this opportunity, let's deliver on some structural change to improve people's lives. In terms of the day to day in the House, you know, we've had these stories about metal detectors and we've learned about um, uh, Congressman Cawthorn saying that uh, with with his wheelchair, he's able to actually have multiple firearms with him. Uh, and, and it's not obvious to others that, that that's what's going on. Are, are you feeling uh, worried day to day about firearms at the Capitol? I personally am not, but I feel I worry for colleagues. I worry for some of the women of color who've been uh, subject to many death threats. I've, I, I worry for people who have uh, been uh, outspoken and targets on uh, uh, on right wing media. Uh, and then I'm sad for our country that every time I go to the Capitol, it's basically a fortress. You have mm. barbed wire, you have uh, the National Guard. I mean, it's a sad thing that we've created that distance between government and people uh, because of uh, the threats that uh, are there on the building. So you're not necessarily changing your protocol, but much has changed at the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, everyone is more vigilant. That's just uh, uh, common sense. And uh, me and our team are, are more vigilant. We probably lock the doors more. We're more careful. Uh, we're making sure that we're not taking unnecessary risks. But personally, I don't feel uh, threatened in the way that some of my colleagues, unfortunately, have been threatened. Yeah. Uh you mentioned infrastructure, and this is such a big topic now, particularly in light of what happened in Texas last week. Yes. And of course, we've gone into detail about the way the Texas grid works, the reality of it's very plausible to winterize wind turbines. Wind turbines are not the cause of this issue. But can you talk a little bit about what would a green infrastructure deal look like? What would be the most important things to include in terms of the types of subsidies maybe that would be put in place, the, the types of jobs that we should be looking to create, how we should be managing the reality that for the most part, we still do get most of our energy from fossil fuels at this point in time? Well, David, I chair the subcommittee on the environment and we're going to be holding a hearing on what happened in uh, Texas. And you're absolutely right. But one of the questions we're going to ask with ERCOT is it's actually cheaper to weatherize uh, wind turbines than it is to uh, weatherize natural gas uh, pipelines. So shouldn't this incident have us move towards uh, renewable energy that's either easier to weatherize, that's easier to build infrastructure around? We need to be built making that kind of investment in renewable energy generation, in battery storage, in electric vehicles, and all of these things are going to create jobs. And we ought to have the federal government help finance it or take equity in it because these are large capital projects. Uh, in building the modern infrastructure for the new energy economy. Uh, that is something that's jobs, uh, good jobs. And it's also something that's going to help us tackle climate change. What will it ultimately take, though, to, to really signal a sea change in terms of I mean, your your state of California has taken a pretty definitive position on a new new vehicle sales will have to be electric after. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it 2035? Yes. Some European countries, Germany, for example, has taken a, a similar approach, but at the national level rather than at the state level. Do you think ultimately the federal government is going to have to make some of those decisions in order to really move forward? I do. I think we ought to set those standards. I think those standards will be good for American business. It's good for us to lead in electric vehicles rather than allowing China to lead. And we could create the incentive to build those plants in places that have lost uh, manufacturing. For example, Lordstown Ohio, Lordstown, Ohio lost an auto plant because uh, we have a demand for SUVs over uh, over sedans. Well, why don't we incentivize that Lordstown, Lordstown, Ohio could become an electric vehicle uh, plant manufacturer or a battery manufacturer? One of the things that's interesting is a lot of the component parts of electric vehicles could be made uh, in the United States. So we have to have a, a real view of how we reindustrialize America and uh, if we do that, it can be uh, towards climate change, tackling it, but also towards job creation. Yeah, there's a bit of a myopic view on, on electric cars. I mean, certainly right now, Tesla is the lion's share of the market. And those are American vehicles. It's unbelievable what, what's going on. But when you look at Rivian, you look at Polestar, you, you look at what clearly is a growing presence of Chinese electric vehicles. There's a particular window of opportunity right now that it sounds like you're saying should should be seized before this goes elsewhere. 
Exactly. And China currently leads in the electric vehicle market. I mean, they don't lead in the U.S. market, but they lead in the China market and the worldwide market. And a lot of the electric vehicle manufacturers, despite Tesla, are there. So we don't want China to eventually be exporting to Europe and to be exporting to uh, the rest of the world. We want uh, our com countries to do, companies to do that. And that's why it has to be collaborative with the uh, government and the private sector to innovate. Last thing I want to ask about two structural issues that we talk about so much in terms of how future elections will will work. Uh, those are campaign finance, how our elections are financed and paid for, and also uh, how how we count votes. Right. The idea of uh, first past the post within an electoral college system. Do you see the possibility of any reform or changes on either of those two issues in the next two years? Is there even an appetite for it right now within the Biden administration and the Democratic Party? Well, H.R. One is all about this, and it's a big idea is to give uh, individuals uh, matching funds to be able to contribute yes. uh, to eliminate big, big money. Uh, to help have redistricting reform. I think it'll pass the House. Again, the question becomes what happens in the Senate. Yeah. And then the question becomes how, what parts will a Roberts court hold uh, constitutional? My view is the big, the simplest thing is to uh, make every voter a donor, give every person a $50 credit to be able to use uh, on campaigns to democratize uh, finance and lessen uh, the value of big money. Yeah, well, I mean, one interesting piece I read said that that's a great half measure, but ideally you would eliminate all of that and simply have straight public financing of elections. Do you see that democratization of, of funds as an intermediate step or as the end goal? I see it as an intermediate step. I mean, I would love public financing of elections, but that just would be struck down as unconstitutional under uh, the way this court has held. Uh, right. Buckley v. Vallejo and understanding of money as speech. So the yep. voucher proposal that Larry Lessig and some others have come up with is to say that it's constitutional even under a Roberts court. And if we can't uh, get rid of the billionaires spending money, at least we can dwarf them with citizen right. uh, resources. And so that's the idea. But I uh, obviously it is a half measure. Absolutely. Last thing uh, we just learned about Joe Biden's plan to essentially pack the Postal Service Board of Governors adding three individuals so that then Louis DeJoy could be removed. Does that sound to you like it will happen as smoothly and as quickly as some are, are hoping? It should. I hope so. I applaud the president for doing that. I mean, Louis DeJoy was just a disaster, not just because of his trying to play games with the election, but his view that you would basically privatize the, the post service. And that that was never the intention. When private companies can explain to me how they're going to guarantee uh, mail going across country for 50 cents and the speed it does, then we can talk. But the reality is they can't. And there's a reason that we have a postal service that is a public entity and we shouldn't be privatizing the few public entities that are working in this country. Ab absolutely. Let's let's hope it does happen that quickly and smoothly. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, of course, from California's 17th district. Always great uh, catching up with you. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me as always. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. The more we learn about various diets around the world, the more we realize that uh, some of the healthiest diets where folks are living the healthiest and the longest are heavily plant based. And one of our sponsors, Just Egg, is a great place to start. Just Egg cooks and tastes just like real eggs, but it's made from plants. It has less saturated fat, no cholesterol, packed with protein. I've been cooking with Just Egg at home, and you can use it in so many different ways, just like traditional eggs, omelets, scrambled eggs, French toast, banana bread, one of my favorite dishes, pad thai. It also is better for the planet, generating 93 percent fewer carbon emissions and 98 percent less water than conventional eggs. You can find Just Egg at lots of grocery stores, Whole Foods, Kroger, Amazon Prime Now and Instacart. Check it out. Just Egg really is a great product from a company with a great mission. And I'm really glad that they're a sponsor of the show. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. So I am um, 
optimistically hoping that there are going to be travel possibilities coming up over the next uh, six to nine months. I do, in theory, have a wedding in Europe I'm supposed to go to in September. So I sent in my passport for renewal on January 5th this year, and I sent it by regular postal mail. And it wasn't even received by the passport processing center for nearly three weeks until the last week of January. Uh, And the Postal Service has never been more kneecapped than it is right now. And a big part of the reason is Donald Trump's choice for Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who has been wreaking havoc at the post office for the better part of uh, a year or longer at this point in time. Louis DeJoy insisted at a hearing yesterday that we'd better get damn used to him because he plans to stay in his position a long time. Take a look. You're a political appointee, a holdover. Um, no one knows how much longer your board. That's that's incorrect. I'm not a political appointee. I was selected by a bipartisan board of governors, and I would really appreciate if you would get that straight. Well, it, how much longer are you planning to stay? A uh, long time. Get used to me. Well, Joe Biden has a clear plan to removing Louis DeJoy, which would be really great for the country and anyone who either sends or receives mail, which is most people for everyone wondering why Louis DeJoy is still on the job and why Joe Biden hasn't simply removed him and replaced him with someone else. It's because the Postal Service Board of Governors chooses the Postmaster General. It's not as simple as Joe Biden can just replace Louis DeJoy. So what Joe Biden and Congress are going to need to do is to fix the Postal Board of Governors before they can have him removed. The only other way I can think of uh, removing the Postmaster General would be for Joe Biden to make it a cabinet level position so he can just pick a new Postmaster General. That seems like it would be relatively difficult to do. So what Joe Biden is planning to do is he is going to nominate three additional members to the U.S. Postal Service Board of Governors. If Joe Biden's nominees are confirmed by the Senate, this would then give Democrats and Democratic appointees, the majority of that Postal Service Board of Governors. It's almost like he is packing the court, except it's packing the Postal Service Board of Governors. Having that majority, the Postal Service could then vote to remove Louis DeJoy from the position of Postmaster General. The three nominees uh, for Joe Biden are reportedly going to be Ron Stroman, who's a former deputy Postmaster General. Uh, Amber McReynolds, the CEO of Vote at Home, which promotes voting by mail, and Anton Hajar, who's the former general counsel for the American Postal Workers Union. So the plan is very clear. Nominate these three folks. They get approved by the majority uh, Democratic Senate. You get a majority on the Postal Board of Governors and then you get rid of Louis DeJoy. Now, whether it will happen that smoothly remains to be seen. But this is an emergency. As a reminder, the Postal Service has been a target of the American right wing for a long time. Remember that the way this fits in is that the right wants the government doing nothing. And as an independent agency under the executive branch of the government, the right really wants to get rid of the Postal Service. One thing they've done is required that the Postal Service prefund pensions of workers decades in advance, which on paper makes the financial situation of the Postal Service look much worse than it actually is. No for profit industry has to prefund pensions that far in advance. It was a calculated measure by the right to argue that the Postal Service is financially insolvent. Another way to hurt the post office is to make it work so poorly that people stop using it, which then makes it even less viable. And Louis DeJoy has done many things to make the Postal Service work less efficiently, including uh, eliminating overtime pay for mail carriers so that undelivered mail at the end of the normal workday, instead of getting delivered, simply goes back to the post office and gets delayed, sometimes for one day, sometimes for many, many days. And as we've seen under Louis DeJoy, on time mail delivery has declined from 96 percent to 80 percent. Some parts of the country like Detroit, even lower, 74 percent on time mail delivery. And this is sadly a key part of the Republican playbook rail against a government department or a government entity or a government, uh, an organization overseen by the government, then 
put they get themselves put in charge of running it. They make it run even worse. And then they say, look, we told you guys this is terrible. Well, yeah, you're making it terrible. And then somehow they'll blame Democrats. And then when Democrats come in and put together a plan to fix what Republicans ruined, Republicans say, Wait, who can afford that? That's really expensive. This thing is functioning so terribly. We would need so much money to fix it. We can't afford that. Well, why is it running so terribly? It's running so terribly because you destroyed it. So it's a very common Republican playbook. And uh, it is one that unfortunately has worked well in many areas. So we see the path. Three new Postal Board of Governors members, Postal Service Board of Governor members, get them confirmed by the democratically controlled Senate. Vote to remove Louis DeJoy put someone in that position who actually wants to improve the functioning of the Postal Service rather than worsen it, which is exactly what Louis DeJoy wanted to do. And it's exactly what he has done. We got him, ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump's tax records have finally been uh, put in the hands of the New York district attorney. You might remember that late last week, the Supreme Court made a decision. Donald Trump can't keep shielding his tax returns from the New York district attorney and the grand jury that has been convened. Donald Trump has fought for years and it has taken years to make this a reality. Trump has fought for years to keep his tax returns secret. Why has he done it? We don't know. Presumably, Donald Trump has made the calculation, maybe accurately, that what is in the tax returns getting out is far worse for him than the criticisms for keeping the tax returns secret. In any case, prosecutors now have the tax returns as of Monday. They got them just hours after the Supreme Court said no to the Trump final appeal for keeping those records private. This includes millions of pages of documents, according to sources, which include Trump's tax returns going from January of 2011 to August of 2019, financial statements, um, engagement agreements, documents relating to the preparation of his tax returns, work papers, communications related to the tax returns. And this is a treasure trove of information. Now, as a reminder, none of this legally is to be released to the public. The release of these tax returns and other financial records are to New York prosecutors for the purposes of investigation and use with the grand jury that has been convened. Now, is it possible that these documents will be leaked? Of course, of course, I don't I'm not counting significantly on that, particularly when it's widely known where they would have come from. This is the only entity now that has had these documents uh, turned over to them. I think that the risk would be high of deliberately leaking them. Uh, could they leak in some other way? Yeah, maybe, maybe um, at this point, it's less about uh, at this point, I don't think even if they were to leak, no matter what's in them, I don't think it would have a significant impact. But there is still sor sort of just a curiosity that I have, like what is in them that is so bad that Donald Trump didn't want them released. And we've speculated before one of the revelations of Trump's tax returns could be one that would simply affect Trump from the standpoint of vanity, that the tax returns may reveal that Donald Trump is not nearly as wealthy as he has claimed to be. And that would be a reason for Trump to want to keep them hidden more for vanity than for any kind of legal repercussions. However, it is conceivable that these tax returns would reveal even more deception from Donald Trump about the value of assets when it's advantageous to inflate the value versus when it's advantageous to downplay the value. And it could get Donald Trump into financial trouble. Uh, it could expose certain liabilities or other connections that Donald Trump has, although much of that would really be in a financial disclosure more than in tax returns. So there's still a question mark as to what exactly uh, would be there. Um, but we simply won't know if and until we actually get these documents released. So they are now in the hands of New York prosecutors. Once the Supreme Court ruled, it happened very, very quickly. And we will see ultimately if we learn more about their contents. I'm not holding my breath but I would be fascinated. Yesterday, I did a segment on the show where I ran through an email exchange I had with an anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist, and um, she disappeared after I asked for the documents she claimed to have. 
And I got a bunch of different emails and voicemails about this, and I'm going to play a voicemail for you that raises an issue that's actually a much bigger issue than just with anti-vax folks. And it's a delicate issue. It relates to mental illness. Let's take a listen to this, and then I want to I want to treat it with with the seriousness that it uh, that that it should be treated with. Take a listen. Hi, David. This is Collins, big fan. Has been a member of your show since the start of COVID, and listen every single day. So your streams are always relief in times of crisis, like January 6th, which is much appreciated. But my question, recently you had an email correspondence with an individual named Amy, who is deep into a number of conspiracies, particularly yes. around COVID and vaccines. So my sister suffers from a number of mental disabilities and also speaks of these issues in a similar manner. So what do you feel, if anything, we can do as a society to reach out to loved ones, friends, acquaintances, strangers even, who believe in this false reality? And also, will we ever take a hard look at the mental illness conspiracy connection and then the impact it has on our political discourse? Thank you. This is a really good voicemail and a, and a serious topic. And, you know, this has come up before on the show where we will look at some of these wildly religious zealots and sometimes they'll call into the show. And sometimes I, I do get uncomfortable and will get away from reviewing some of their content because it comes clear that they do seem to be suffering from some kind of, of severe mental illness and without diagnosing anyone with some of these extreme religious zealots who call me about Biden is the the riding in on a white horse and this prophecy and that pro at a certain point, it, it sort of becomes indistinguishable from someone having a psychotic episode, someone suffering from paranoid delusions, etc. We've talked with experts on conspiracy theories and conspiracism on the program before, and they've said that, yes, uh, mental illness, emotional trauma, um, unmedicated, undiagnosed mental illness. There is a significant interplay between that and people who go down the, the so-called rabbit hole really deeply with a lot of this stuff. And unfortunately, from from our standpoint, when we're observing anti-vax ideas that are out there, it can be difficult to, de de to, to determine what is what. There's no question that with a lot of extreme thinking. So thinking not just, oh, vaccines can have side effects, but they're very safe. And if you have side effects here, right, like going to this extreme of the vaccines are killing people, you're part of the cover up and that's part of the cover up and all this different stuff. Um, their uh, emotional trauma and things going on in people's lives can play a big role in people falling for that. Th there's many examples I, I know of people um, who uh, let's see how I can how I can even say this. These are folks, folks I grew up with, actually, who after a traumatic event of different kinds, in, in one case, it was uh, a sexual assault. In another case, it was uh, another type of family trauma. They became extreme when it comes to diet to the point where they were hopping between extreme diets, one where you only ate fruit, like a lunch could be like a dozen bananas or something like that um, to another diet of only. OK, different things that doesn't matter what the specifics are. And the, the sort of connection to the trauma is very, very clear and much the same way that sometimes after trauma, some people simply become depressed or some people become anxious or some people develop agoraphobia. They don't want to leave their house. Uh, there's no question that if opportunity strikes and circumstances are right, that same type of trauma uh, or simply long term undiagnosed mental illness can make it so that, oh, it's the it's vaccines that that's the topic right now. Well, I'm going to jump into the vaccine conspiracy theories or whatever the case may be. So unfortunately, this relates to to far bigger issues. Number one, it relates to lack of access to mental health resources and also stigma around mental health. Uh, services that that really shouldn't be there. And this can apply to any kind of conspiracism, conspiratorial thinking, paranoid delusions, psychotic episodes, all of this type of stuff. From the standpoint of policy, you know, it's very difficult to have to evaluate uh, uh, the, the, the sort of um, emotional state of individuals when we are debunking this uh, uh, flawed thinking. So it's a really, really tough thing. I think it's important to handle it delicately and we don't want to further stigmatize mental illness. But there is no question that, you know, when I get 20 anti-vax emails, um, some portion of those people 
are are less people that are truly researching and, and convinced about this particular thing. This is just the current outward manifestation of what could be all sorts of uh, emotional, mental health and, and psychiatric issues. And it is, it is a very complicated situation. So I don't know what else to say about it other than I, I'm aware of this and I don't exactly know uh, how to best deal with it. We have a great bonus show for you today. Um, we will reveal just how close Texas was during the power outage to a power outage that could have actually extended into the months rather than the days. It's, it's shocking what we're learning about what's going on there. The South Dakota attorney general is now facing impeachment and calls to resign over new evidence in a fatal uh, art, uh, car crash, which we will discuss. And I, we didn't have time to talk about this. I do want to talk about this entire Kim Jong Un ride home on Air Force One thing that's been floating around. So we will have all of those stories and more on today's bonus show. I hope you'll sign up and grab a membership at joinpacman.com. It's cheap, it's easy, you'll be supporting the show, and you'll get instant access to today's bonus show. I'll see you then.